Okay, so if you would please turn to the Gospel of Luke. Turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23. I'll be reading Luke 23, verses 26 through 31. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, Do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us! To the hills, Cover us! For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Blessed is the reading of God's holy Word. And that's what I ask, Father. That the words that I just read penetrate these historical words will penetrate our lives our worship our affection for you and your son will penetrate how we do relationships will penetrate how we deal with our daily sin And so I ask for a heavy falling of Your Spirit upon us during this time to the glory of Your name. We have already had 11 sermons covering so far these last 24 hours of Jesus' life. The most profound historical events in human history. And now, we really enter into the holy and profound ground as Jesus is handed over to the Roman soldiers to do their business of execution. And so, in what's coming today and the weeks ahead, there's no other way to go about it but slowly week by week. And my prayer is that we will be feeling appropriate feelings as the slow, torturous death of Jesus unfolds. That we will feel the depth of our sin that put Him on the cross. That we will feel the horror of a holy God's judgment against our sin 
in and on His Son. That it took that price to redeem us. That we will feel a deeply affectionate thankfulness to our Lord and our Savior. That man, Jesus Christ. And that we will be overcome with such a love as this. That He would lay down His life for His sheep. So this morning, we walk the road of sorrows through the streets of Jerusalem, out the northern gate, and then over there to the hill called Golgotha. Traditionally, this has been called in Latin the Via Della Rosa, the road of sorrows. And the road really began in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before where Jesus in deep torment and anguish over the prospect that He had always known He was headed for, but was so close now, not only the torture, but much more, that He would be the sin offering and thus the wrath of God would be poured out on His human soul and His human Body, so that he said to his disciples, My soul is very sorrowful, even to the point of death. And then his arrest, and then his three trials before the religious Sanhedrin, as they slugged him and spit on him, and then the intermediate time where the soldiers had charge of him through the night and got bored and toyed with him. It's blindfold him. Okay, Mike hit him. Bam! Who hit you, prophet? You're a prophet, aren't you? Bam! Who was that? Spit on him. Then in the morning, three more trials before the secular government. And then, the brutal scourging. Let's see, at this point, as we're working our way through Luke... Luke does not mention that he was scourged. He does mention Pilate saying, I'm going to scourge him and I'm going to go. But he doesn't actually say it like the others tell us where he was scourged. So I just want to slow down and kind of get a feel now. At this point in the narrative, what has been transpiring now? See, Matthew and Mark at this point both tell us almost precisely the same thing. Pilate wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And here it is. And having scourged Jesus. Just really short. But oh, was it chock full. Having scourged Jesus, He delivered Him to be crucified. So let's get a little historical background. There, there were three levels of floggings that the Romans used. The first level, which they called in Latin, festugatio, it was the less severe beating that was given to, you know, not very serious crimes like hooligans, okay? And they would get this less severe beating and send them off with a very strong warning, stay out of trouble. Then, on the second level of flogging was the flagellatio, 
it was a more brutal flogging that was given to more serious criminals. And thirdly, there was the dreaded verberatio. This was the most terrible scourging of all. And it was almost always inflicted on those who had the death sentence who weren't Roman citizens and thus they were to be crucified. Before the crucifixion, it was inflicted on them. The victim would be stripped, have their hands tied to a post, and then beaten and beaten by several soldiers until the soldiers were exhausted. And what they used in this was a long leather strap that had all kinds of leather tassels on it with embedded sharp pieces of bone and metal so that as it came down, it would grab and pull and shred the skin of the victim. The beatings of this third one were so brutal that victims sometimes died from it and never made it to the cross. The early church historian Eusebius, when he's speaking of many Christian martyrs later, says, quote, they were torn by scourges down to deep-seated veins and arteries so that the hidden contents of the recesses of their bodies, their entrails and organs were exposed to sight. All right, there's a little historical background. Now, we need to flash back to where we were last week to the trials before Pilate to say, okay, what, what, how's this unfolding here? If you remember, Luke two times in his account tells us Pilate came out to the Jewish council and the Jews that were gathering, larger and larger crowd, and he told them, look, I find no guilt in this man. Therefore, what I'm going to do is this. I'm going to go punish him. We're going to flog him. And then I'm going to release him with a warning. Two times he tried that. Now, I'm convinced that what Pilate meant there was the first level of flogging. The less severe form. And he thought it would satisfy. Look, I mean, this is not pleasant. And I'm going to give him the warning. He's going to flee. He's not going to bother you, Jews, and your, this leadership anymore, okay? That's what I think he meant. Now, I need you, if you have a Bible, to turn to John or click over to John or however you do it. Because now, John lets us know something that the others don't speak of. And that is during the trials, Pilate did have Jesus flogged. In the middle of the trials, in chapter 18 of John, and then in the 19, in the middle, in chapter 19, verse 1, we read, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. There it is. See, that's not the end of the account, and then he releases him to crucify. See, look at verse 4. After that, Pilate went out again, and he said to them, You see, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. And, of course, they yelled all the more, Crucify him! And then Pilate takes Jesus back inside again, and he talks to him. Pilate is still seeking to get Jesus released. But the crowds then are getting to the place of almost 
a riot. And that's when they accuse him. Pilate, you release him. You're no friend of Caesar. And all the pressure then finally caused Pilate to cave in. And at that point, he then delivered Jesus over to be crucified. And so now, it is here that he is again scourged, but with the third level of ripping his flesh apart, off his bones, cartilages showing. His hands were tied and blood was splattering and he was beaten almost to death. That's what is in Matthew and Mark's account. Here's the way Matthew says it almost identical with Mark. In Matthew chapter 27, starting with verse 26. Then he, Pilate, released for them Barabbas, and having Jesus scourged, delivered him to be crucified. And then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion, probably at least 60 men. They gathered the whole battalion before Him and they stripped Him and put a scarlet robe on Him. Okay, this flogging has now happened. It's gone on for a while. And now... He's supposed to be a king, isn't he? And they put a scarlet robe on him. Well, he needs a crown. And twisting together a crown of sharp thorns. They put it on his head. A king needs a scepter. And so they put a reed, a stick, in his hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on Him. And they took the reed from Him and struck Him on the head as the thorns go deeper. And when they're finally done, they had enough. The guards are finally getting bored after all this. They stripped Him of the robe and put His own clothes on Him and led Him away to crucify him. And this was a gruesome prophetic fulfillment of Isaiah 52, verse 14. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Put his clothes on and began the march through the streets. Of Jerusalem. Now, this march through the streets of Jerusalem, every Roman subject, including the Jews in Jerusalem, they knew the procedure well. It was common. And Rome liked it that way. To put fear into the subjects that they ruled. Watch it, or this will be you. And so the soldiers, they didn't say, what's the quickest way out of town? They were happy to take a couple blocks around 
through this parade of criminals on their way outside the city gate to Golgotha as a warning to the people. Now, the basic Roman practice was that each criminal was forced to carry his own piece of wood. The wooden cross beam. Like you dot your eyes and you cross your T, the part where you cross the T, that big piece of wood they were forced to carry all the way to their place of execution. Now, when they get to the place of execution, the vertical beams, they're already there. They're pretty permanent. They're fastened to the ground, these big old planks. And so when the victim arrives, they're made to lie down on their back and their arms are stretched out and they're either tied to that wooden plank they had to carry or they were nailed to it. And then the soldiers would lift the plank up with the person nailed to it and fasten it to the vertical piece. And they would have also nailed a little seat onto the vertical piece so that it would hold the body weight. And it wasn't to make it less painful. It was to cause them to survive longer and breathe so that the torture would be all the worst after their feet now have been nailed to the vertical piece. So, there's the background. If you're back there in Luke, chapter 23, verse 26, now He tells us, And as they led Him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on Him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. So the crucifixion march is on and there are two other guys who are going to be killed with Him and they're all forced to carry their cross beam, which is probably 60 to 80 pounds in and of itself. And around each criminal, there are four soldiers surrounding them. And the one in front is carrying this wooden placard with the crime that the criminal is being crucified for. And of course, Jesus says, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Pilate hated the Jews. He hated the Jewish Sanhedrin. What I've written, I've written. They hated. Don't write that. He said he was. He's not. Pilate says, king of the Jews. Being killed. Jesus was a strong carpenter in the prime of his life. But he had been so viciously beaten throughout the night and finally with the third level of flogging and the cat of nine tails and the blood loss from having his skin ripped from him and his muscles torn apart and for blocks and blocks his arms stretched out trying to carry that big huge piece of wood, he kept stumbling and he's not making it anymore. And the soldiers are thinking, uh-oh, what are we going to do? Because soldiers will never carry that. The Romans would never carry the crossbeam. It was such a, a piece of desecration and humiliation. 
And so the answer to their problem came from a very surprised North African Jew from the city of Cyrene. As this African Jew was entering the city, the guards grabbed him and forced him to pick it up and to carry it behind this criminal out to the gate. And then another couple, football field's length, to Golgotha. We're going to come back to Simon in a few minutes. But at this point now in the narrative, Luke tells us something that the other three Gospels don't. Starting with verse 27. And there followed Him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. Now, these are a bunch of female mourners in Jerusalem. These are not the women that, that followed him as his disciples up from Galilee into Judea and into Jerusalem. These are Jerusalem women. It is cultural. It still is in the Middle East at funerals to wail loudly. Okay, and this is like a death march with the crucifixions and these women would come out and wail for those who were on their death march to Golgotha beating their chest and crying loudly and bringing drugs, opiate drugs that they could slip to the prisoners to help them with their pain. That's what's happening. But ironically, they mourn for the wrong person. These women here represent the nation and the main city of the Jews, Jerusalem. So shockingly, Jesus, as weak as He is, turns around to face Simon and these women. And He says, in verse 28. Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Jesus is three-fourths dead, weak, bloodied, and His heart goes out to His fellow Jews. It's a people. Don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. Why? Well, the answer is because of the prophecy that he then goes on to deliver on the road of sorrow. Here's Jesus, through all that we have seen now for weeks. He can't even carry the piece of wood anymore. It hurts. And yet the pain of the judgment upon Jerusalem is on His heart. As He is dying, he is thinking of others. 
And so why does He make the point? Don't weep for Me. Weep for yourselves. Pity yourselves. Meaning the Jews and the nation as a whole. Why? Because He knows what's going to happen 37 years later. When the Roman general Titus with his army surround the city and end up destroying it along with hundreds of thousands of Jews. This is how he says it here. Look at verse 29. This is why you are to pity yourselves. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wounds that never bore and the breast that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. He's saying that the coming judgment upon the nation and Jerusalem will be so horrific that barrenness, which was then in that culture normally considered a curse, will be deemed as a blessing. Because when the Roman armies in late 69 and throughout the year 70 surround the city and don't let any more commerce and food come into the city and thousands are starving to death and Titus and the army finally enter the city and burn it to the ground, slaughter hundreds of thousands of Jews and destroy the temple down to the ground in fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy. Jesus is saying, women will be thankful they don't have a four-year-old child or an eight-year-old or a ten-year-old or a twenty-three-year-old. They will be blessed in that day. So much so that they will pray for an earthquake to cause the mountain to fall and kill them and put them out of their misery. It's essentially the same prophecy Jesus gave a work week earlier on His so-called triumphal entry into Jerusalem on the donkey when He said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And then is Jesus He's looking at the women. After the prophecy, he adds this little proverbial line in verse 31. For if, for if, oh, that means the reason that's coming is for if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Green wood is not burned very easily. Jesus is the green wood. The nation of Israel is the dry wood that will ignite easily. Jesus is saying, 
to the Jews as a whole. If you deliver your Messiah over to God's instrument of judgment, the Romans, and yes, I'm green wood, and yet God is not withholding His judgment against sin on me. And how much more will they be treated for rejecting the cornerstone of their salvation? The dry wood of Jerusalem will ignite under God's judgment. Just as Jesus is being judged, I hope it's for your sin, by the hand of the Romans, so Jerusalem will also be judged and go up in flames by the hand of the Romans. But let me remind you about Jesus' warning that He has said a few times about the year A.D. 70, and He says it again here, that all who may perish in that destruction of A.D. 70 doesn't mean they're all guilty. Jesus left open the possibility that many of these Jews will repent in the hearing not only of this death He's going through, but of the resurrection of this same Jesus from the dead. In two months from this moment, 3,000 of these Jews in Jerusalem will repent and come to saving faith in Jesus as Peter preaches. And 37 years later, in AD 70, the Jerusalem Jewish church, many of those believers will have already fled Jerusalem when things start to heat up in AD 66, 67, 68 with Rome in Jerusalem, knowing Jesus' warnings, flee the city. This prophecy is a means of grace on the road of sorrows. It is a door of salvation that is opened even to an unsuspecting African Jew. Even on Jesus' death march, He was in the process of sovereignly redeeming one of His sheep. Simon. God is in absolute control of everything. Even of every flap of that fly on your windowsill. He is in sovereign control of every atom and molecule in happening. It's true of your life. Think of it. As I think of mine, was it by accident that at age 19, all of a sudden, during the early weeks of 1981, I had this growing 
insatiable desire to finally, for the first time in my life, pick up that family Bible and start reading it? Was it an accident that nine months later a neighbor called me and asked if I wanted to go to church with him and his brother? And it became my home church for the next ten years of my life? Was it an accident that Simon of Cyrene was entering the city that morning, right at that moment? No. In God's world, there are no accidents. Let me give a little background here. Simon of Cyrene. See, in Jerusalem, there was a Cyrenian synagogue. You remember Acts 2. The Holy Spirit falls. The early disciples flood out of the, the building and babbling away and all these differing Jews at the Feast of Pentecost there from all over the parts of the world are hearing them in their own tongues. And Luke tells us that one of those was this, quote, from the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene. Or in Acts chapter 6, verse 9, Luke says this, Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians. You see, even in the early church, there were Christian preachers, such as Lucius of Cyrene, who were converts to Jesus out of the synagogue of the Cyrenians in Jerusalem. Luke puts it this way in chapter 13 of Acts. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene. Then there's this other guy who was actually a really good friend of Herod the Jerk. I mean Herod the Tetrarch. He was a really good friend. Converted to Christ, became a teacher. And then Saul was there. So, a little background. Now, back to the road of sorrows. Out of nowhere, Simon involuntarily joined the death march. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. So as Jesus struggled along, now humiliated Simon begrudgingly bore that piece of wood. Now, have you ever asked yourself the question, why? See, why did it happen that way? Why could Jesus not get it all the way there? And that this particular African Jew from northern Africa on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea carried it? But that's always a good question. 
But there's lots of those things we don't know anything about in human history and even in Bible history because they don't tell us about all kinds of details. But they're important to God. But so the question goes deeper. Why do the three synoptic Gospels all spend space here telling us about Simon of Cyrene? I have two reasons that I feel very convinced of. First is this. Simon's bending down under the weight of that cross of Jesus, carrying it all the way to Golgotha, is a dramatic picture of what is necessary to be a disciple of Christ. As Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross on his back daily and follow Me. Or as He declared in chapter 14 of Luke, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after Me cannot be My disciple. God sovereignly created this historical image so that every genuine believer will feel that in many ways Simon is us. We are to feel the weight of dying to the world. Dying to our flesh of dying to sin and living to Christ. We are to know that to be a believer will mean suffering loss. Loss of reputation. Maybe even and has been the case of thousands of brothers and sisters through the centuries. The very loss of your mortal life precisely because you follow Christ bearing the cross. The second reason why I think they mention it and give the space to Simon is that he became a Christian. That morning when he was constricted by the guards, he was just an obscure figure out of hundreds of thousands of Jews in Jerusalem. But I want you to do something right now. I want you to turn to Mark. And I want you to notice what Mark says at this same place, parallel passage here, In Mark 15, verse 21, he writes, And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country to carry his cross. Now those who did look at it, you noticed I left out a phrase. 
As Mark says something that is stunning. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country. Oh, <laughs> this is the dad of Alexander and Rufus. Why would John Mark name Simon's sons 25 years later when he composes this narrative of Jesus' life? The obvious answer is because Mark and many other early Jewish Christians in Jerusalem knew Simon and his family personally. Well, how'd that happen? There was no other way that that happened unless Simon became a believer and a part of the Jerusalem church. Now, just hold on now, now watch. Down the road, 25 years later, Mark's Gospel was originally written to the church in Rome. Okay? And he writes that. And according to the Apostle Paul, at this time, 25 years later, when he writes his letter to Rome, Simon's son, Rufus, and Rufus's mom, Simon of Cyrene's wife, were working and living and serving the church in Rome. Paul says this in Romans chapter 16, verse 13. And greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Now, in case you miss it, you've got to understand, when Paul wrote that, he had never been to Rome. How does he know these people in Rome? Because he's met them throughout the Roman Empire at different times of his life before they matriculated to Rome. And therefore, years earlier, whether it was in Jerusalem or Judea or Cilicia or Antioch, somehow Simon of Cyrene's wife became a caretaker mother to Paul. Thus, Alexander and Rufus were like brothers to him. And later on, that family ends up in Rome. And so now Mark pens his gospel, his narrative of Jesus' life, finally in the late 50s A.D. to the Roman church. And you can see them as they hear it for the first time and it gets delivered and they rent a big, huge hall and they're sitting there. And the reader gets to this part of the narrative and they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country. The father of Alexander and Rufus, as you can see, they giggle. It's your dad, man. And nudge him. Simon's wife is there. As far as we go this morning. But pastor, where's the application? Okay. Here's the application. That over these weeks, 
these most significant moments in human history that we would with all of our hearts and minds follow and contemplate the stations of the cross from Gethsemane to Golgotha and do it with all of our sin in order to draw near to Him, not away from Him. And so to help our contemplation at the close of this morning, I'm going to read extensively in these last ten minutes or so to help us. I'm going to do it because I want you to be as moved as I was moved when I first read this story. And not moved because of the art of storytelling, but to be moved by our Savior, by the Holy Spirit as we listen. And so, from Steve Cole, here goes. Just picture first, we are visited by a guy from the Church of Rome who comes into the future to speak to us. Hello, my name is Rufus. I am one of the laborers in the cause of Christ in the Church of Rome in the first century. I'm a good friend of the Apostle Paul. In fact, we're like brothers, you might say. He spent some time with my family when we lived in another part of the empire and my mother became like a second mother to Paul. So I feel like he's part of the family. But I I didn't come here to talk primarily about myself, but about my father. It was his godly life that influenced and motivated me to be faithful to the Lord. He's with the Lord now, but... Some of the lessons he learned in the school of faith are the foundation of my life, and I'd like to share some with you. You see, Dad's name was Simon. We are Jewish in spite of our Roman name. And he hailed from the city of Cyrene on the northern coast of Africa. And what you know today as Libya... He met the Lord Jesus in a most unusual and unexpected manner. Dad was a faithful man, looking and praying for God's promised Messiah to come and deliver His people from their sins. But he left home for his pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Passover that year. He told us this, that he was pleading with God for a time of unusual blessing A time when his prayers of many years would be answered. How little did he suspect just how God would answer, in fact, his prayers in a way that he didn't recognize at the time. In fact, Dad thought of it as an irritating, humiliating interruption to his day that messed up the very reason he traveled all the way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Dad remembers complaining 
one time in my life that I'm finally able to come to Jerusalem for the Passover. I spend all the time and the money for this one great week. And then this happens. But I'm getting ahead of my story. See, Dad had gone up to Jerusalem for the Passover along with tens of thousands of other pilgrims. This was in the days before telephones and computers and advanced reservations, you understand. So, when Dad arrived, he couldn't find a room anywhere in the city. He found lodging a short distance outside in the country yard. Countryside, I mean. That unforgettable morning, he was walking into the city between 8 and 9 a.m. to participate in the day's activities in the temple. Just as he got to the city gate, he met a surging crowd coming out of the gate which turned out to be led by a Roman execution squad leading three condemned prisoners to be crucified. You see, crucifixions in my day were common enough. So Dad didn't pay much attention to what was happening. He just stepped to the side and waited for the crowd to pass, thinking, poor wretches, I wonder what they did to deserve this. And I better hurry and get to the temple or I'll miss some of the ceremonies I came all this way to see. The Roman soldiers in our day, they got a sadistic kick out of making a condemned man carry his own cross to the site of his execution. It was just another way they rubbed in their superiority and dominance over the peoples they ruled. And just as the group passed to where Dad was, one of the prisoners, who obviously had already been badly beaten and abused, slumped to the ground under the load of the cross. The soldiers kicked him and cursed at him to get up. But it was obvious that this prisoner just didn't have the strength to go another step under the load of that heavy cross. Before he knew what was happening, one of the soldiers shouted, Hey you! And he roughly grabbed Dad by the arm and dragged him toward the fallen prisoner and barked, You carry it for him! The other soldiers laughed at Dad's misfortune. Dad was stunned and protested, But if I touch the cross, I'll be defiled for the Passover. That made the soldiers roar even louder. The guy who had grabbed Dad snarled at him. It wasn't a suggestion, buddy. It's a command. So Dad picked up the despised implement of death, hoisted it to his back, and fell in line behind the bloodied back of the prisoner who turned out, of course, to be Jesus. Since he was already involved in his celebration of the Passover, I mean the celebration and the Passover was messed up anyway, Dad decided to stick around and to witness the brutal proceedings. It was a day that marked him forever. As Dad saw the sky grow dark and felt the earth shake as he watched the way in which Jesus bore his suffering and how he treated his persecutors and what he said to the penitent thief hanging beside him, Dad knew that this was no ordinary man. 
Dad heard Jesus cry out the words of Psalm 22.1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Just before he died, Dad heard him proclaim, It is finished. As Jesus breathed his last, Dad heard one of the centurions standing nearby exclaim, Truly, this man was the Son of God. And Dad had the strange sense that he was right. From that moment, Dad began to wonder if this Jesus could possibly have been the Messiah that the prophet Isaiah wrote about. Surely our griefs He Himself bore and our sorrows He carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell on Him and by His scourging we are healed. Later, Dad learned that the thick veil in the temple had been torn in two from top to bottom at that very moment, symbolizing what Jesus, our Messiah, had done in opening the way for us into God's holy presence. Dad's remaining questions were cleared up 50 days later at the Feast of Pentecost, as he heard Peter and the other apostles proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus. That day, Dad, along with 3,000 others, put his faith in the resurrected Lord Jesus as his Messiah and Savior. You see, Dad's life and our lives as his family would never be the same after that day. Dad led us to put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and we have devoted ourselves to serve Him. Later, Dad shared with us some valuable lessons about salvation and service from his unusual experience that day. Dad came to see that nothing, especially not something as crucial as our eternal salvation, that nothing ever happens to us by chance, even though it may seem that way to us. Salvation is God's doing, not our doing, and is certainly not left to coincidence, He would tell us. Think of it, Dad would muse aloud, if I had slept in for a half hour longer that morning, or if I had gone into the city a half hour earlier, I would have missed that encounter that forever marked my life. But God was there. Behind the scenes, guiding my footsteps toward that life-changing moment. Praise to His sovereign name. You see, my dad did not decide to carry the cross that day. He had no desire or plans to go to Golgotha. 
He wanted to go to the temple. But he was chosen out of the crowd and conscripted to go to the cross. Later, Dad learned that Jesus had told his disciples, You did not choose me. I chose you. And I appointed you to go and bear much fruit. Dad used to reminisce and tell us salvation is God's doing. It's not our doing. And yet, Dad said that he always felt kind of responsible as he watched the soldiers drive those spikes through Jesus' hands into that beam that he had carried up there. Later, Dad came to realize in a much deeper sense that his own sin really was responsible for the crucifixion of Christ. He came to this earth to give His life as a ransom for sinners. Each of us is guilty of enough sin to put the spotless Son of God on that cross. Salvation is totally because of God's unmerited favor. After he became a Christian, Dad said that for him, one of the most meaningful sayings of Jesus was, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You see, as I come into the future to speak to you in the 21st century, Sometimes in serving Jesus, it's a lot more popular to go with the religious crowd in their way of doing things. There is a popular Jesus out there. He's not bloody, despised, and forsaken. He's healthy and wealthy. He exists to make you happy right now in your marriage. And in your work. But the Jesus Dad followed was the same one Paul later preached. The one who shames the wisdom of the wise. He preached Christ crucified. Even though carrying that cross was a shameful thing for my Father. On that very day, it became His glory. Dad knew what Paul meant when he wrote, but may it never be that I should glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Let's pray. Father, I pray that on the Via Della Rosa and the stations of the cross over these weeks we've covered in the weeks to come,
will feel what it is to be Simon. And I ultimately mean every soul in here, child and adult alike, will feel what it is to be conscripted into following the Savior unto eternal life. To the glory of Your name. Amen.